0: Hi, I'm Jason Flom, here on Righteous Convictions, I speak with some of today's most prominent and active agents of change, people who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. Today's guest uses her experiences growing up in public housing to inform her decision making as she leads a state attorney's office with a past that is fraught with injustice and racial inequity.
1: The ends justified the means for so many people. And so if the tactics needed to be rougher to keep more affluent neighborhoods safe, people turned a blind eye. And so it's why the work that we do and is so important because justice delayed is justice denied, but it's never too late to do the right thing.
0: Now, she's righting the wrongs of the past as well as creating a brighter future for all of Chicago. Cook County State's Attorney, Kim Fox, right now on Righteous Convictions.
2: When you buy Kroger brand products, you
3: feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how
2: Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping
3: for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning shop now in store or online Kroger fresh for everyone. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day and a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandy's can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandy's. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandy's.
0: Welcome back to Righteous Convictions. This is a show where I have the privilege of interviewing some of the most righteous people I've ever had the chance to meet. And today is no exception. And if I sound excited, it's because I am. Because today I get the distinct honor of interviewing Kim Fox, who is the state's attorney for Cook County, Illinois. And in case you don't know, that's the second largest prosecutor's office in the country. But it's not that. It's that her entire story, her entire being is just something that you are going to, I think you're going to really, you're going to thank me for this. Trust me. So Kim Fox, welcome to Righteous Convictions.
1: Man, thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Your origin story is really quite extraordinary and I think very atypical for prosecutors or DAs in this country. So can you take us back to Cabrini Green and explain what that is for people around the country who don't know what that is?
1: So I grew up in the Cabrini Green public housing projects here in Chicago for, for people who might remember 70s sitcoms. It's where Good Times was based. And it was one of the most notorious public housing projects in the country, particularly in the 70s and 80s, known for its violence, its poverty, so much so that, you know, the symbol of Black American poverty on television was housed in Cabrini Green. And You know, I have one of these stories that you see very typically of people who come into the justice system. My mother's second child, born when she was 18, she dropped out of high school. You know, I survived childhood sexual abuse while living in the projects. And, you know, my mother scraped and survived to try to move us a mile north of Cabrini out of the projects into a more affluent neighborhood where everything just changed for me. Lincoln Park that had a magnet school that taught foreign languages from kindergarten on and taught classics, you know, how to be a critical thinker and an engaged writer. All when I was in third grade and knowing in real time that I had cousins a mile to the south of me, same abilities and talents that I had who were not being offered what I was being offered. And so I had teachers who saw something in me, who labeled me as a gifted student and who were really willing me into college when I didn't have a roadmap of how to get there. And so, you know, when you look at people in our system, you know, who come from concentrated poverty, who have histories of childhood trauma, um, who have all of these instances stacked against them, you typically see them in the system, just not as the chief prosecutor. And that has been a journey to say the least and informs everything that I do in this work.
0: It's interesting, too, because the percentage of Black female prosecutors, not to mention DAs in this country, is in the very low single digits. I don't know if it's 1%. It's, it's around that, right? It's about
1: that. I was an assistant state's attorney for a dozen years, and I was always in the minority in the office. But the overwhelming majority of people who came into the system as defendants, as victims, as witnesses, look like me. And it would be incredibly frustrating to have people making determinations on who is a criminal and who's not, who we should sympathize and empathize with and who we shouldn't based on what they saw on TV and not any real connection. And so it wasn't even just for me like, aha, I can do this. It was years of toiling in the system that saw so many people criminalized for things that I had seen in my family, right? My mother smoked weed almost every day. I I think I told the story of being like a mule, like in the eighties and I didn't know it. Like there's a man who used to come drop off my mom's package every day and I'd take it to her and it was was weed. And my mother was suffering from bipolar that hadn't been diagnosed because she was a poor woman living in the projects and was self-medicating. There was nothing about my mother that was criminal. But every day I saw women like my mother, boys, men like my brothers or my uncle come into the justice system and people make value judgments on them and what they could be, all the while knowing that I was like them. And so that's what it was more for me coming from the projects and saying, what would happen if we had someone like us in this role where we weren't just defending ourselves, right? Always in reaction to the arm of the state. And I wanted to be in a position of not just reacting to that power, but compassionately using that power representing the community that I came
0: from. You took over a city that has had one of the most troubled histories of any city in the United States in terms of the relationship between law enforcement and the citizens, right? The Midnight Crew, which was a crew of officers that were taking specifically black men to a warehouse and torturing them, medieval-style torture, until they confessed to crimes that most of the time they hadn't committed. So you took over you know, a really troubled system and a fraught relationship between the community and the people who are supposed to be serving and protecting it. That's an amazing challenge. And you hit the ground running.
1: I mean, well at first we started with owning that history that you just described, right? In Chicago, the wrongful convictions, the police torture, the police misconduct had become so ingrained in our system it just was like Chicago hot dogs and pizza, right? We had become so normalized to it that we didn't recognize that This doesn't have to be this way. The fact that we spend almost $50 million a year on police misconduct lawsuits that we are now teaching a curriculum in Chicago public schools about John Burge, who led the torture crew, and that they didn't do it in isolation. For those wrongful convictions to take place, there had to be a prosecutor that ignored someone with a black eye or someone who said, they beat me, they put electrodes on my testicles and a prosecutor who said, I don't believe you or just didn't take it seriously. So it didn't happen in isolation. So when I came into office, I owned that dark history and the prosecutor's role in it and then said that we have an affirmative responsibility to do something about it proactively not engage in those practices. Make sure that we are treating every defendant humanely, that we are questioning the police in their tactics, that we don't rubber stamp their behavior. And then retroactively saying we got to right the wrongs of the past. We can't pretend like it didn't exist. We can't say there was one case here or there. It meant for our conviction integrity unit to be revamped. So it wasn't a conviction integrity unit in name only, so we could feel good about saying we had it. It meant doing the hard work of saying, We gotta go out to the people who've been wrongfully convicted. We have to meet them where they are. They don't have to come find us. We have to be transparent in how we do our work. And we have to be unapologetic to challenging the systems that were in place. And so when I came into office, that was one of my platforms. We saw a five-fold increase in the number of people who reached out to us to review their convictions. And we beefed up the staff, we budgeted more money for it, and we got to work. And to date, our conviction integrity unit in the last five years have vacated almost 120 convictions.
2: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
0: As we talk about wrongful convictions, I think one case that really highlights the depth of the problem in Chicago specifically, is the case of Marcus Wiggins. This is a young, this was a 13-year-old boy, not call him a man, he was a child, who was tortured in the notorious torture chamber, Burge and his crew, and ultimately had his conviction overturned, sued and won a civil suit, and then they targeted him again and again. They framed him for another murder, but he proved that he was in Wisconsin, where his family had moved to, and then they framed him a third time. I mean, that's pretty unusual, even in all the years I've been doing this, to have the same group of cops frame one person three separate times, but that's exactly what they did. And the third time it stuck and they were able to keep him in jail for over two decades. How can that go on unchecked the way that it did for as long as it did?
1: Yeah. And obviously, I can't speak to the specifics of Marcus's case because it's made its way back to us. And it is my sincere hope that there is a thorough examination of how we got here and how to make it right. But I think we get here when there was a system that took care of itself and had little regard for the people who came in. You know, the Midnight Crew and the various factions of that were allowed to operate with impunity for a decade. And so I think if you try it once and you are outed for what you've done and nothing happens and you try it again, what would tell you that you couldn't do it more than once? And I think it was a system that so long as people felt that they were trying to keep communities safe didn't care about the means. The ends justified the means for so many people Particularly people who didn't live in these communities. It's a controversial thing to say. We're talking about, you know, neighborhoods on the south and west side of Chicago um, that were predominantly black. And there were assumptions that were made about those people. And so if the tactics needed to be rougher to keep, you know, more affluent neighborhoods safe, people turned a blind eye. And so it's why the work that we do in our Conviction Integrity Unit, where, you know, we will revisit this case again is so important. Because it doesn't matter that two decades have passed. You know, we want to get to the truth and right the wrongs because justice delayed is justice denied. But it's never too late to do the right thing.
0: So talking about undoing the hurt, it, we can't have that conversation without talking about one of the most notorious police villains in Illinois history. And that's a unfortunately a large group. And I'm talking about former Cook County Police Sergeant Ronald Watts.
1: Yeah, Ronald Watts was a Chicago police sergeant who was assigned to the Ida B. Wells housing projects. And basically, he and his crew terrorized the people in this public housing project. And he would specifically target people who he believed to be drug dealers or associated in that world and shake them down for their money. And if they would not cooperate, he would plant guns or drugs on them. Sergeant Watts ended up being caught under a sting by the feds and went to prison because of his actions. He and and one of his colleagues went to prison for it. And despite the fact that they went to prison for shaking down people in Ida B. Wells, for years no one did anything from the prosecutor's office to go back and undo those convictions. I think largely because people felt like, well, those were bad guys too. And that's what allowed Ronald Watts to thrive, was the belief that, you know, there was no redeeming value in the people that that he shook down, that they couldn't be true victims. It is horrific what he did, and it didn't matter who they were, and we were going to do something about it.
0: How many convictions have been reversed by your work and your office tied to him personally?
1: Personally tied to him, 109.
0: That's one sergeant.
1: One sergeant. It's 109 and counting, we're still reviewing cases.
0: I'm gonna go ahead and read a quote from you, Kim, from a press conference that you gave just a couple of weeks ago at the time we're recording right now. After nine more convictions were vacated, quote, there's a lingering pit in my stomach due to the real sorrow that for so long, Sergeant Watts and his crew were able to terrorize and criminalize a community. Today, we were able to bring some justice to nine people who were targeted and victimized by former Sergeant Watts. Former Sergeant Watts has caused irreparable damage to our community, but he also undermined the integrity of our justice system, which harms us all. Communities who are dealing with unrelenting violence need to believe that law enforcement is there to aid, not hurt. His actions diminish faith in our system. Today is a small step toward righting the wrongs of the past, and hopefully we can start to build back trust in law enforcement. Those are your words, Kim Fox. <laughs> I, I feel... I feel privileged to be able to say them here on the show. But what was that like? I mean, what kind of feeling do you get being able to bring some, as you said, justice delayed but not denied, to just those nine people, for instance?
1: It's bittersweet, heavy on the bitter. Because it, it, it in that moment... You are validating what they had been saying for years, but it's not giving them back the time that they lost. These were our fathers; these some were husbands, sons whose parents passed away while they were incarcerated. Marriages were broken up. Children who will live with the legacy of having an incarcerated father validating that they were telling the truth is great in that moment, but you can never give them back what they lost. And so it's hard to celebrate. One woman um, whose husband and had her own conviction vacated said to me, you know, people treat us like heroes when we're finally right about what we always knew, but no one ever apologizes to the harm that they caused. And so that echoes every time that we do this is a reminder That there was a harm, there was a hurt that was inflicted, and that this is just a small measure, but we really owe more to a system to not hurt its citizens in the name of law enforcement.
2: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
0: I think people have this very strongly held misconception that public safety is tied to locking as many people up as you can. When in fact, what you're proving and what these other progressive DAs and now Jason Williams in in New Orleans and others are proving is that it's actually the opposite of the truth. When I look
1: at a place like Chicago that is grappling with gun violence year after year, and when I came into office in 2016, it was at that time the bloodiest year we'd seen in 20 years. And I look and say, well, what are we doing to deal with the violence? And I look at our resources. People would be surprised that, you know, 40% of the cases that were in our system in 2016 were drug cases. And 60% of those were drug possession cases. That the number one referred prosecution in my office in 2016 was for shoplifting in Chicago in a year of blood and loss we were spending more of our resources going after shoplifters and people with drug addictions. And what I said was that made absolutely no sense. This is not what people believe is is what an engine for public safety should be, going after people with these low level offenses. And so I raised the threshold for what somebody could be charged with as a felony for shoplifting, for retail theft. And we stopped prosecuting large swaths of low-level drug possession cases. And what that did to the shock of many, we saw a 20% reduction in the Illinois prison population from just those two categories alone, not going down to prison in the first place. And we have to remember it's these low level offenses and the convictions that people get that then have the consequences that last a lifetime. Once you get a conviction, even if it's for a low level felony, you may as well have committed murder in the way that society sees you, the ability to get a job, housing, a scholarship. And so I think we have to be more judicious when we give people convictions. And so we did have a policy that said we weren't going to engage in these low-level criminal foot pursuits while murders were going unsolved, while rapes were going unsolved. And we were then able to shift our resources the following year away from that because we stopped prosecuting them and being more focused and intentional on violent crime. But the other thing I would say In addition to that, the work on the conviction integrity and tackling police misconduct, if you don't get a handle on that, communities that are are impacted by violence... They don't trust you. They don't think you're legitimate. They don't think you're credible. So that when something happens in those communities, the last thing they're going to do is call the police. The last thing they're going to do is engage with a prosecutor. And so those communities will see a continuation of violence because of the delegitimization of the justice system. So not only are we changing our policies of what not to prosecute, actively touting the work that we're doing on police misconduct and wrongful convictions is a way to rebuild that legitimacy so people impacted by violence can trust us and that we can work to driving violence down together.
0: Now, the number one referred charge in Chicago is, you guessed it, (laughs) guns, right? What a difference. And this is how I think we actually create a system that's fairer and better and safer for everyone is by, it seems so simple, focusing the resources (laughs) on the real problems as opposed to people who really... Many of them have nowhere to turn. I'm not saying that shoplifting is right. I'm not endorsing it. But it also needs to be treated as what it is. It's a, it's usually an act of desperation. Nobody wakes up one day and has plenty of what they need and goes shoplifting unless they're really psychotic. So so let's face it, Kim. Lack of resources, just poverty, lack of cash. I mean, this is the main driver of this explosion in the prison population, right?
1: Yeah. I was the chief of staff to the county board president of Cook County, and Cook County has the largest single-site jail in the country. And when I started working for her in 2014, on any given day, we had between 10,000 and 11,000 people in our jail pretrial. 10,000 people. I tell the story that when I was in high school, I went to one of these scared straight programs and they walked us around Cook County Jail and there were mattresses on the floor because of overcrowding. And here, clearly it scared me straight to a prosecutor's office, like 25 years later, the same jail having the same issues. And so we were tackling like, what are the levers that have people lingering in jail for so long And the number one issue was accessibility to cash. And we saw people languishing in jail for these nonviolent offenses because they couldn't pay something as little. And when I say as little, it's relative, it's $500. Meanwhile, there were people who were engaged in very dangerous behavior, who know that the cost of doing business is going to jail and they had access to those funds. We had, you know, again, talking about police accountability with Jason Van Dyke, you know, the police officer who shot and murdered Laquan McDonald, pumping his body with 16 bullets. The Fraternal Order of Police posted his bond. So he got to wait his first degree murder trial at home. Meanwhile, one of these low level shoplifters was sitting in jail. So we put out a list very early in my tenure of cases in which we would not be asking for cash bail. We'd ask for people to be released on recognizance bonds. Um, we pulled out altogether of making monetary recommendations because who are we as prosecutors to determine what someone could afford? And then we actively lobbied the state legislature along with the coalition in money bond to remove cash bail as the determination of whether someone should be detained pretrial or not. It should be a simple calculation. Are you a risk to public safety or you're not? And if you're not, you don't get to be held pretrial. We know the outcomes are devastating for people who are held pretrial. And again, reminding folks that there's a presumption of innocence until proven guilty. And these people were sitting presumed innocence for months, many of whom would take a plea just to get out. And again, it goes back to the legitimacy. If people are pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit, because they can't afford to sit there. Your system is not credible and legitimate. And we couldn't have that.
0: Governor Pritzker did something progressive and bold. And of course, I'm talking about the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act. This is historic.
1: Yeah, I was really proud of our state, our governor, and to be a part of the coalition uh, that was pushing for the legalization of marijuana. And not only did we make it legal, it was also a provision in there of like, how do we right the wrongs that we now know that the war on drugs inflicted on so many communities, particularly black and brown communities? So there was a social justice component built into the law that allows for people who have previously been convicted of possession for amounts that are now legal to have their convictions automatically vacated and expunged at no cost to the person who had had the conviction. The governor also immediately pardoned 11,000 people right before the law was to take place. And he came to court with me when I did the first thousand convictions being vacated. He sat in the jury box and I was incredibly choked up reading the names of the people who were going to get some measure of their lives back. Because it made no sense that people are now going to be able and have been making money hand over fist hand over fits. I think we broke a billion dollars in marijuana sales in the first year here in Illinois, which happened to coincide with the pandemic. And meanwhile, there are people in neighborhoods that have been devastated by the war on drugs, languishing with these convictions and can't even get a job in an industry because of the previous conviction. And so It was historic in that we were the first state to put the vacating of convictions as automatic into the legislation. And Governor Pritzker has been a true advocate of that. They're also working on and there have been stumbles around equity in the industry uh, because we see so many people making money again in the industry, but very few are people who come from impacted communities. And so they are working on right-sizing that. And that's been a more difficult journey than the relief that we've been able to give thousands and thousands of Illinoisans who had a previous conviction.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I was a pothead as a kid. I mean, I smoked. I, I sort of, I don't know. I had so much hair. It's a miracle. I never set myself on fire. And I smoked more than, I, I can't even, I, I was just stoned all day long. It was crazy. I mean, I don't I don't smoke it anymore. But I think as long as they don't put anybody else in harm's way, I don't think anyone should ever be punished for something that they put in their own body. I mean, it's like, it's. it's a, we're supposed to be a free country. I want to thank you again for being here. I know how busy you are. I mean, your job is a huge undertaking and you're handling it with grace. And I uh, I think we all owe you a debt of gratitude. But I want to ask you one last question. I promise this is the last one. Well, I think I try to ask every guest this on the show. Let's say you had a magic wand and you could wave it and fix one problem, and whether in Chicago or Illinois or our country, or society, what would it be?
1: Gosh. Um, one. <laughs> uh, you know, poverty. I-, I think it's not the only one, but it is one that really is something that I think we can fix, that it doesn't even need a magic wand to do it. That if we really were concerned about being the best that we can be as a society, we wouldn't let children go hungry. We wouldn't have systems in place that keeps communities down. I tell people all the time, I'm the first Black woman to hold this role, and I come from 624 West Division, one of the hardest projects in the country. Imagine the brilliance and excellence and innovation that is happening in neighborhoods that don't have access to broadband, that don't have access to the internet, that don't have access to libraries. We are held back by the lack of um, investment in the belief that every community has value. And if we eliminated that and gave access to everybody, to our our basic of needs, I think the rest of those issues start to be solved for because we bring every level of brilliance to the table from those people we left behind.
0: Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardus. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Righteous Convictions is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.